0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 371 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast.
2: As you guys will recall, we used the last show to talk about the nine Confederate Infantry Brigades, three from Longstreet's Corps and six from Hill's Corps, that made up the attack force for Pickett's Charge. And then, while those division and brigade commanders worked out the specifics of the advance, and as their men settled into line on Seminary Ridge under an increasingly broiling sun, there were sweating, gray-coated artillerists who moved to and fro to their front, wheeling and unlimbering their guns along the crest of the ridge line, preparing for the tremendous bombardment that was to precede the infantry assault.
0: It's very important to remember that Robert E. Lee's plan for the big attack on the center of the Federal Line on July 3rd consisted of two parts, an artillery bombardment followed by an infantry assault.
2: Right. And in Lee's plan, the artillery bombardment was absolutely vital to the success of the infantry attack. Lee actually intended for the artillery to have two critical roles. First, in an effort to soften up or weaken the enemy center, the Confederate artillery was to target, with a sustained fire, that portion of the Federal position. Lee intended that batteries from all three corps—Longstreets, Hills, and ewells would put forth an unprecedented volume of cannon fire to suppress and squelch the fire of the defending enemy batteries and overwhelm and demoralize the the defending enemy infantry.
0: Longstreet's battlefield artillery chief, Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, said his orders were, quote, "...to give the enemy the most effective cannonade possible. It was not meant simply to make a noise, but to try and cripple him. When the artillery had accomplished that, the infantry column of attack was to charge."
2: The second role that Lee intended for the Confederate artillery to play was to advance with the Rebel infantry and provide them close support. In his Gettysburg Battle Report of January 1864, Lee states this expectation, "...the batteries were directed to be pushed forward as the infantry progressed, protect their flanks, and support the attack."
0: Porter Alexander also mentions that this aspect of Lee's plan was, in fact, part of his instructions. He states that after the preliminary bombardment and after the rebel infantry started their assault, and then, further, I was to advance such artillery as can be used in aiding the attack.
2: The Confederate artillery's assigned roles were critical elements of Lee's plan for what came to be known as Pickett's Charge. Lee would have certainly been aware of the inherent risks in making a frontal attack, but he intended that the massive preliminary bombardment, and then the artillery's close-in support of the infantry attack, would even the odds, or shorten them, so that the rebel foot soldiers would be able to advance across nearly a mile of open ground, pierce the Federal Center, and score a breakthrough.
0: Fifty-three-year-old Brigadier General William Pendleton served as the Army of Northern Virginia's Artillery Chief. He graduated fifth in the West Point Class of 1830, but left the Army after three years and entered the Episcopal Ministry, becoming Rector of Grace Church in Lexington, Virginia.
2: When the Civil War broke out, Pendleton became captain of the Rock Bridge Artillery and its four cannons, nicknamed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John his West Point ties likely helped to elevate him rapidly to Colonel of Artillery on Joe Johnston's staff, and also won him promotion to Brigadier General in March 1862. When Robert E. Lee took command of the Army after Johnston's wounding that summer outside Richmond, Lee retained Pendleton as Chief of Artillery, but in truth Pendleton rarely served as that arm's operational commander in the field. As the war went on, his duties increasingly revolved around administrative and logistical concerns rather than battlefield leadership. In his book, Gettysburg, Stephen Sears writes that on July 3rd, quote, "...it became General Pendleton's task to design and execute the bombardment. It was an assignment larger than anything he or the Army of Northern Virginia had ever attempted before." It meant assigning or approving the best firing positions, specifying targets, ordering and coordinating the fire of a dozen battalions of artillery from three Army Corps, instructing battalion and battery commanders in firing discipline, detailing batteries to advance with the infantry, positioning replacement batteries and ordnance trains, and of vital importance, assessing ammunition supply against anticipated demand. According to Pendleton, he gave his earnest attention to all these subjects. In point of fact, he fell far short in almost all of them.
0: Porter Alexander would comment that Pendleton, quote, was too old and had been too long out of army life to be thoroughly up to all the opportunities of his position. But I never knew that General Lee himself fully appreciated it.
2: The 28-year-old Alexander, a Georgian, had graduated third in the West Point class of 1857. 2nd Lieutenant Alexander resigned from the U.S. Army in May 1861 to enter Confederate service as a captain of engineers. Bonus points if you remember that it was Alexander who, while serving as a signal officer at 1st Manassas, saw the glint of Federal bayonets off in the distance and alerted the Confederate forces to the Yankees' attempt to turn their left flank.
0: After First Manassas, Alexander became Chief of ordnance for the Confederate Army. Promoted to Lieutenant Colonel of Artillery in December 1861 and Colonel of Artillery a year later, he commanded one of five artillery battalions in Longstreet's Corps, seeing action at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville.
2: Alexander had displayed impressive talent and initiative at Chancellorsville. So although he started the Pennsylvania campaign in command of an artillery battalion in Longstreet's Corps, upon reaching Gettysburg, Old Pete bypassed his chief of artillery, Colonel James Walton, and put the extremely capable Alexander in actual tactical battlefield command of the Corps' artillery.
0: When last we left Porter Alexander, it was at the end of episode 362, and it was early morning on July 3rd. After positioning guns in the dark in the recently captured peach orchard, Alexander had fashioned a rough bed from two fence rails and, quote, "...with my saddle for a pillow and with dead men and horses all around, I got two hours of good sound and much-needed rest."
2: Because he was under the impression that the attack here would be continued early in the morning on the 3rd, Alexander had hurried to post his guns in the darkness before dawn. However, at first light, he discovered that he had made a mistake, and had positioned at least a dozen of them in a poor spot, where they would be at a disadvantage and vulnerable to well-directed enemy artillery fire. He admitted, quote, It scared me awfully, end quote. But, working quickly and quietly, he got the guns pulled back and deployed in a better position before the Yankees across the way realized what was happening.
0: On this Friday morning, after the plan for Pickett's charge came together, James Longstreet would work closely with Porter Alexander. Through the morning hours, Alexander positioned the rest of the Corps' artillery until he had 76 pieces in a long gun line running some 1,300 yards from the Peach Orchard northward behind the Emmitsburg Road up to Spangler's Woods.
2: Colonel R. Lindsay Walker, Chief of Artillery for AP Hills Corps, deployed 55 guns in front of Seminary Ridge for the bombardment and it's kind of obligatory when talking about Walker's guns to mention that well to the north on Oak Hill were posted two British-made Whitworth rifles. These very rare and remarkable breech loaders were capable of firing an unusual twisted hexagonal shell called a bolt with exceptional accuracy up to three or four miles and so outranged everything else on the battlefield. If you visit Gettysburg today, you can see two Whitworth rifles behind and to the left of the Eternal Peace Memorial there on Oak Hill.
0: Don't forget about the sound.
2: All right. Okay, well, it's also obligatory to mention that a Whitworth bolt made a distinctive sound when flying through the air, described as a shriek or a whistling sound, that apparently could be easily distinguished from the noise made by other shells. So, there you go.
0: Then that just leaves Ewell's artillery, and Dick Ewell's gunners would contribute just 33 pieces to the bombardment. In fact, Ewell's artillery chief, Colonel J. Thompson Brown, makes no mention at all in his battle report about the participation of his batteries in the cannonade.
2: It was here with the artillery from Ewell's corps that Pendleton failed inexcusably, according to Porter Alexander, who said, quote, The great criticism I have to make on the artillery operations of the day is upon the inaction of the artillery of Yule's Corps. Quote. To understand Porter's criticism, we have to go back to the benefits for an army of operating on interior lines and the disadvantages of operating on an exterior line. Remember, an army operating on exterior lines is at a disadvantage, because to move troops from one part of the battlefield to another, you have to march them around the outside of the arc of a circle. However, the one advantage of the Confederates' exterior lines here at Gettysburg is that they could concentrate converging artillery fire on a single point of the Federal line, and in the case of a number of Yule's batteries, could target the enemy line on Cemetery Ridge with an enfilading fire. And if you've been listening to the podcast a while, you know enfilading fire is particularly destructive.
0: Porter Alexander wrote that the Confederates' exterior lines at Gettysburg, and especially the position of some of Yule's batteries, quote, enabled us to enfilade any of the enemy's positions near the center of their line with artillery fire. No troops, infantry, or artillery can long submit to an enfilade fire.
2: Alexander went on to point out that some of Yule's guns were ideally positioned to deliver such a fire, and yet only about two dozen shots were delivered by those pieces that were in the enfilade position. That, said Alexander bluntly, was Pendleton's fault. Quote, General Lee's chief should have known and given every possible energy to improve the rare and great chance to the very uttermost. Alexander was simply pointing out that if the various Confederate batteries on the battlefield were going to exploit the advantage of an exterior line it would have to be the Army's Chief of Artillery that made that happen. But, unfortunately, Pendleton failed to coordinate or direct the fire of the batteries in that way, and so Alexander saw that a golden opportunity was
0: lost. Besides the clear failure of leadership on Pendleton's part, the Confederate artillery would also be laboring under a few other handicaps namely inferior battery organization and inadequate and faulty ammunition.
2: Right. You see, on the Federal side, batteries had one type of gun, for example, 12-pounder Napoleons or 3-inch ordnance rifles, which simplified ammunition supply and facilitated tactical deployment and operation. However, on the Confederate side, every battery assigned to Pickett's charge had at least two different types of guns in the unit, which complicated ammunition supply and caused difficulties with regard to tactical deployment and operation. In other words, well, the matter of ammunition supply is easy to understand, but with tactical deployment and operation, it's a bit more technical. But just think if you have a mix of smooth Napoleons and then rifles in the same unit. Those cannon aren't the same with regard to accuracy and range and what they do best, which means if you position the battery in a spot that's ideal for the rifles, then the Napoleons are operating at a disadvantage and vice versa. So that's the handicap of inferior battery organization.
0: And then there were the problems of inadequate and faulty ammunition. So, in other words, troubles Mm -hmm. with quantity and quality.
2: Exactly. Many of the batteries had been engaged Mm -hmm. on either July 1st or 2nd, or on both days, and as a result, the Army's supply of long-range artillery ammunition was depleted by July 3rd. There was actually still plenty of canister, But, as you guys know, that was for short-range cannon fire against infantry. No, it was the supply of shot and shells used at longer ranges that was a concern by July 3rd. And apparently no one told Lee or Longstreet about this problem, and they never asked. And so they apparently just assumed there was plenty of ammunition to maintain a sustained bombardment. But in fact, as Porter Alexander noted, quote, we had no artillery ammunition to waste, end quote, which meant that no matter what Lee had in mind, the batteries involved, in Alexander's words, quote, had not the ammunition to make it a long business,
0: the shortage of long-range ammunition was made worse by its quality, since both the gunpowder and the fuses for the shells were notoriously poor.
2: The Confederates used the Borman time fuse on their shells. It was a small, circular device edged with a ring of soft lead filled with fine powder, and it would be screwed into the base of a shell. A gunner cut the circle at a mark according to the range to a target. If it worked as designed, the fuse would detonate the shell directly over an opposing battery, or right above the heads of enemy soldiers.
0: But Porter Alexander estimated that only 20% of Bormann fuses functioned properly during the war. They would either fail to detonate entirely, or explode prematurely before reaching the target, or explode too late after flying over the target.
2: Okay, so the takeaway from all of that is that it's important to understand that the massive preliminary artillery bombardment was a critical component of Lee's plan for Pickett's charge. Lee intended that batteries from all three corps, Longstreet's, Hills, and Yules, would put forth an unprecedented volume of cannon fire to suppress and squelch the fire of the defending enemy batteries and overwhelm and demoralize the defending enemy infantry. But in reality, this key part of Lee's plan, this critical component of his strategy, would suffer from poor leadership on Pendleton's part, and would be handicapped by inferior battery organization and inadequate and faulty ammunition.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It was approaching 11 a.m. when Porter Alexander informed James Longstreet that the Corps' artillery was positioned and ready. However, Longstreet told Alexander that the Confederate infantry was still filing into place, so to wait for now, and he would let Alexander know when the artillery should start the bombardment.
2: Of course, all that activity on the Confederate side of the lines had not gone unnoticed by the Yankees. Between 10 and 11 a.m., as the combat on Culp's Hill neared its end, Brigadier General Henry Hunt, the Army of the Potomac's artillery chief, conducted an inspection of the federal batteries that were positioned on the front line from Cemetery Hill to Little Round Top. Leaving the 1st and 11th Corps batteries on Cemetery Hill, he rode south along Cemetery Ridge and looked west towards Seminary Ridge. There, Hunt saw the long enemy gun line across the way and couldn't help but be impressed. He later recalled, quote, Our whole front for two miles was covered by batteries, already in line or going into position. Never before had such a sight been witnessed on this continent, and rarely, if ever, abroad.
0: Impressive though the sight was, Hunt knew there was serious business ahead. He correctly reasoned that the Confederates were setting the stage for a big infantry assault, aimed directly at the Federal Center. Spurring his horse, Bill, along the line and riding to each artillery chief and battery commander, Hunt told them to be prepared for a heavy enemy, enemy cannonade, but to wait 15 or 20 minutes before firing in reply. Hunt
2: also instructed his officers, quote, under all circumstances to fire deliberately and to husband their ammunition as much as possible, end quote. Hunt told them to save at least half of their ammunition for the Confederate infantry charge. Henry Hunt realized that the Federal gunner's main business here on this day would be targeting the advancing Rebel foot soldiers, and he wanted to make certain his batteries had sufficient shells on hand for that job, rather than wasting them all beforehand in dueling with the Confederate guns across the way. Hunt knew that an artilleryman could ask for nothing better than massed lines of enemy infantry marching across open fields, with each step reducing the range and bringing them closer to the killing cannon fire, and he wanted to make certain his batteries would be up to the task when that time came.
0: Hunt paid particular attention to the position of the 2nd Corps guns along Cemetery Ridge, If, as Hunt suspected, the enemy was about to launch a big attack against the center of the Federal line, then he knew that attack would likely be aimed here, at the portion of the line held by the infantry of Winfield Scott Hancock's 2nd Corps.
2: Hunt conferred with Captain John Hazard commanding the 2nd Corps' artillery. Hazard had five batteries in position, a total of 27 guns, stretching from Ziegler's Grove on the right, to a point several hundred yards south of the copse of trees.
0: Lieutenant George Woodruff's Battery I, 1st United States Light Artillery, held a position just in front of the grove.
2: To their left were Captain William Arnold's Rhode Island Battery and Battery A, 4th United States Light Artillery, commanded by 22-year-old Lieutenant Alonzo Cushing, whose half-dozen 3-inch Ordnance Rifles extended south toward the Copse of Trees.
0: South of the Copse of Trees, and in position to the left of Cushing's guns, was Fred Brown's Battery B, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery, commanded here on July 3rd by Lieutenant Walter Perrin.
2: Finally, on the left of the 2nd Corps gun line was Captain James Wordy's New York artillery.
0: Holding positions atop Cemetery Ridge, directly in the center of the Federal line, these batteries were fated to suffer heavy casualties that afternoon because they were targeted especially by Porter Alexander and other Confederate artillery officers across the way on Seminary Ridge.
2: And then to the left of Hazard's Second Corps guns and extending south along the lower portion of Cemetery Ridge toward Little Round Top was a formidable array of Federal artillery, numbering some 37 pieces in all, and commanded by the Artillery Reserve's indefatigable Lieutenant Colonel Freeman McGilvery.
0: And finally, farther south, also poised to contest in advance by the Confederate Infantry, were Gibbs' 1st Ohio Light Artillery and Rittenhouse's Battery D, 5th U.S., in position on the northern slopes and summit of Little Round Top.
2: In all, more than 110 Federal artillery pieces were lined up from Cemetery Hill to Little Round Top, with most of them facing west towards Seminary Ridge. In addition, Hunt ordered that as many batteries as possible be readied from the Army's Artillery Reserve. That meant that by noon, he would have well over 200 pieces, either on-line or ready in reserve, prepared to respond to any Confederate attack on the center of the Federal line.
0: Henry Hunt was certainly not alone in thinking that the rebels were preparing to attack the Federal Center. George Meade believed so as well. Indeed, late the night before, upon the close of his Council of War at the Leicester House, Meade supposedly pulled aside Brigadier General John Gibbon, whose 2nd Corps Division held a position on Cemetery Ridge, left and right of that copse of trees.
2: Meade told Gibbon, If Lee attacks tomorrow, it will be on your front. When Gibbon asked why, Meade answered, Because he has made attacks on both our flanks and failed, and if he concludes to try it again, it will be on our center.
0: On June 30th, during a pause in a march, Sergeant Benjamin Hurst of the 14th Connecticut had written a letter to his wife from Uniontown, Maryland. Hurst told her, Today we expect to be in old Pennsylvania, and I feel ready to go. I should give up on the roadside, but I want to be counted in if there is a big battle in the old Keystone State.
2: Less than two days after Hurst wrote home, he and his comrades in the Second Corps were would indeed be in a big battle at Gettysburg. Arriving on the battlefield after daylight on July 2nd, the officers and men of the Corps found themselves positioned on Cemetery Ridge at the center of the Federal's fishhook line of defense. Later that day, some of them were sent to the southern end of the line to try to contain the damage caused by Dan Sickles' reckless advance of his 3rd Corps. While still later, toward evening, the fighting came to some others in the Second Corps when the Confederates stormed toward Cemetery Ridge, across the open fields to the west. The boys in blue fought off the rebels, and then welcomed the end of the day's bloodletting when darkness at last covered the landscape. Speaking of their fight that day, one of the Federals vowed in his diary that he and his comrades, quote, were determined not to be drove.
0: When the sun rose on July 3rd, the men of the 2nd Corps went about their morning routine, and then, as the hours passed and the temperature rose, they watched the same sight that Henry Hunt had found so impressive, namely, the rebels across the way getting ready for something big. And it appeared that this something big would probably be coming directly at the part of the federal line held by the men of the 2nd Corps.
2: That was fine with their commander, 39-year-old Winfield Scott Hancock. Hancock, a Pennsylvanian, was a West Point graduate, class of 1844. His antebellum career followed the typical course of solid Mexican war service and frontier garrison assignments. In the Civil War, during the Peninsula Campaign, leading his brigade at Williamsburg, he won the enduring nickname... Hancock the superb. He rose to division command after Antietam and took over the 2nd Corps only after Chancellorsville. Hancock's presence is such a dominant feature of the Gettysburg story that it's often forgotten the battle was his first as a Corps commander.
0: Standing 6 feet 2 inches tall, Hancock was a physically impressive figure. Always well-groomed and clean-shaven, except for a mustache and goatee, he invariably wore a clean white shirt beneath his uniform coat, regardless of weather or circumstances. One staff officer guessed that Hancock's servant, quote, must have had a hard time of it, washing those shirts.
2: (laughs) Such was Winfield Hancock's sheer presence that Staff Officer Lieutenant Frank Haskell was convinced that if Hancock had ridden onto a battlefield in civilian clothes, unknown to the troops, and started issuing orders, that, quote, he would be likely obeyed at once, for he had the appearance of a man born to command.
0: Hancock was a superb tactician with a good eye for terrain and an instinctive feel for the flow of combat. He also possessed a fearsome temper, which often manifested itself during a battle as an explosion of eye-popping swearing and cursing. An officer in the 1st Corps, whose unit was positioned next to Hancock's troops on July 3rd, later observed that on that day, with regard to Hancock and the 2nd Corps, quote, leader and men were never better suited to each other.
2: In Hancock's line on the crest of Cemetery Ridge were the divisions of Brigadier Generals Alexander Hayes and John Gibbon, with John Caldwell's battered brigades in reserve farther south on the ridge, to the left of Abner Doubleday's 1st Corps troops. Between them, Hayes and Gibbon had perhaps 5,300 men, covering a front of roughly 2,000 feet. To the north, the 2nd Corps line began in the Ziegler's Grove area near the Bryan Farm with troops from Hayes' division. Hayes had with him there on Cemetery Ridge only two of his three brigades, since Colonel Samuel Carroll's brigade had been rushed to Cemetery Hill as reinforcements when the Confederates charged up the hill's eastern slopes the previous evening.
0: Three regiments of Colonel Thomas Smith's brigade, the 12th New Jersey, 1st Delaware, and 14th Connecticut, held the stone wall that ran from the Bryan Farm to the Angle, where the wall turned west down the slope of the ridge.
2: The men in these regiments had piled fence rails on top of the wall, raising its height to nearly three feet. The 108th New York of the brigade was posted to the right and rear as support for Woodruff's battery. Smith's final unit, the 10th New York Battalion, rested behind the crest to the left rear of the 14th Connecticut.
0: Hayes' former brigade of New York regiments lay among the trees of Ziegler's Grove to the rear of Smith's troops. Part of the brigade had been labeled the Harper's Ferry Cowards after being part of that place's garrison, which had surrendered to Stonewall Jackson during the Antietam Campaign in 1862.
2: On July 2nd, here at Gettysburg, when ordered into the fight, the New Yorkers had charged Barksdale's Mississippians, shouting, Remember Harper's Ferry! They drove back the rebels and earned some redemption. Colonel George Willard had assumed command of the brigade when Hayes took over the division. During the action on July 2nd, Willard was killed instantly when struck in the head by a shell. Colonel Eliakim Sherrill of the 126th New York had succeeded Willard and ordered a withdrawal. Hancock rode up, learned of Sherrill's decision, and had him arrested. On the morning of July 3rd, however, Hayes and Colonel Clinton McDougall of the 111th New York asked Hancock to reconsider. Hancock relented, and Sherrill resumed command of the brigade.
0: John Gibbon's division continued the Corps' line south along Cemetery Ridge. Gibbon was one of Hancock's favorite subordinates. Born in Philadelphia, he had grown up in North Carolina and had three brothers in the Confederate Army.
2: On the morning of July 3rd, Gibbon's three brigades covered the Corps' front between Hayes' position and the sector held by troops of the First Corps farther south. Brigadier General Alexander Webb's so-called Philadelphia Brigade held the stone wall in front of the copse of trees, with its right unit connecting with the left flank of the 14th Connecticut of Hayes Division. Webb was new to this command, having served as Chief of Staff in the 5th Corps until June 25th, when Gibbon had sacked the Philadelphia Brigade's commander, Brigadier General Paddy Owen, for an alleged violation of orders and tapped Webb to replace him.
0: Two of Webb's regiments, the 69th and the 71st Pennsylvania, manning the stone wall from the angle south to in front of the copse of trees, spent the morning stockpiling abandoned muskets, preparing for the deadly work ahead. Eventually, they amassed, quote-unquote, a large pile of guns.
2: The final brigade in Gibbons Line was led by Brigadier General William Harrow, His four regiments had all been engaged on July 2nd, but none had been so bloodied as the 1st Minnesota, which Hancock had ordered to charge an advancing Confederate brigade in order to buy him time to bring up more units. The Minnesotans had bought Hancock his time, but at a steep price, losing more than two-thirds of their number in the process. Now, here on the morning of the 3rd, Harrow's men, not having the benefit of a stone wall to their front, dug a shallow trench, mostly using bayonets and plates, piling the dirt up and topping it with fence rails, stones, brush, knapsacks, and blankets. One soldier didn't think much of the effort, describing it as, quote, "the molehill line which passed for a barricade." End quote. But it was better than nothing.
0: First Corps troops from Abner Doubleday's division extended the line south along Cemetery Ridge toward Little Round Top. The division's largest brigade was composed of three regiments of nine-month Vermont troops commanded by Brigadier General George Stannard. The Vermonters had only recently been attached to the Army of the Potomac, having served previously in the Washington defenses. They had missed the fierce fighting on the first day of the battle, and now, in their new uniforms, they contrasted sharply with the scruffy veteran units in Doubleday's command.
2: By noon, a profound silence had descended upon the battlefield. The battle for Culp's Hill had ended sometime around eleven. The vicious little fight for the Bliss Farm had ended when Hayes had ordered the house and barn set afire. Mm -hmm and now that smoke hung in the sky like a funeral pyre. Under the relentless July sun, the rising heat and humidity smothered the men in both armies, the Confederates on Seminary Ridge, and the Federals resting behind stone walls and small mounds of dirt and fence rails on Cemetery Ridge. It was the odd stillness that they would remember It was so quiet a federal artilleryman on Cemetery Hill claimed he heard honeybees at work.
0: For an hour or so, this strange quiet enveloped the battlefield. A Confederate artillery officer on Seminary Ridge thought the silence, quote, produced a feeling of nervous expectancy, which sometimes is felt when an electrical storm is pending.
2: On the federal side, within the 11th Corps lines, Major General Carl Shirts noted the quote unquote, "perfect stillness" which seemed so out of place at midday on a battlefield that Shirts labeled it ominous. He noted the quote, "profound silence" so sharply contrasting with the bloody horrors which had preceded and which were sure to follow.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Civil War Artillery at Gettysburg, Organization, Equipment, Ammunition, and Operations by Philip M. Cole.
2: This is, quite simply, an excellent book covering every aspect of the workings and role and battlefield tactics of the long arm at Gettysburg. In fact, we consider it an essential reference work Not just for those interested in the topic of artillery at Gettysburg, but for everyone wanting to dig deeper into the subject of Civil War artillery in general.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: As we wrap up the show, we want to be sure to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support, Susan W., Jonathan S., David K., Todd C., Joshua, Don M., and Edward K.
0: And then just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we use it with their kind permission.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.